This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Did 9-11 pave the way for Donald Trump? I'm Sean Elling, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. That's a big question. And until I read the new book by Spencer Ackerman called Reign of Terror, I hadn't really thought about it. Ackerman is a longtime national security journalist who's covered the war on terror since its inception roughly two decades ago. Ackerman's answer to my question is yes. And his argument is something like this. The war on terror and the excesses it unleashed eroded the institutional armor of American democracy and left the country defenseless against its own pathologies. And those pathologies prepared the ground for a figure like Trump. Reading Ackerman's book was a whirlwind for me. I was 19 years old when the towers fell. I'll never forget watching the planes hit the wall. I'll never forget how confused and angry I was. And I'll never forget the thoughts running through my mind as I realized I was headed to boot camp in just four months. Still, 9-11 seems so distant and trying to follow the thread over the last 20 years is daunting. But there is a thread. And if you track it closely enough, you can see how profoundly that event changed our politics and culture. In today's episode, I talked to Ackerman about how the war on terror upended American politics and set us on a glide path to nativism and lawlessness. We also discussed the failures of Democrats like Obama to course correct and why the end of the conflict in Afghanistan does not mean the end of the war on terror as we know it. Spencer Ackerman, welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks very much for having me, Sean. I want to start by flashing back to 9-11, which seems like a lifetime ago. Hell, some of our listeners weren't even alive when it happened. But you wrote something in the book that stuck out to me. You said, I have to admit that after 9-11, I swallowed that red pill myself. Even after I thought I spat it out over the carnage of Iraq, it took me years to recognize its lingering effects. That resonates with me because I departed for boot camp four months, almost to the day after 9-11. And I remember watching those towers fall from my apartment. And I remember the rage and the confusion I felt. I remember how eager I was to go over there and do something, exact some kind of revenge. I've come to see things very differently since for all kinds of reasons we'll get into here. But I did want to start by just asking how that moment changed you or at least temporarily scrambled your worldview. So I'm a native New Yorker. I live in the same Brooklyn neighborhood where I was born and raised. And I was not in New York when the towers got struck. I was in New Jersey at Rutgers University and I was living in a group house and I went downstairs and my roommates were just looking at a TV and sobbing. And the panic that went through me, I mean, 
the feeling of not like being able to get back home was really overwhelming. I remember wondering if my parents and my cousins were about to die, that people in New York, my loved ones, nearly all of my friends, nearly everyone that I've ever cared about, just feeling like they were in imminent threat of death and there was nothing I could do about it. I couldn't even be with them because they shut down transportation. And it took me until Friday uh, to get back into the city. And I went to one of the rally points for rescue at Ground Zero, just thinking like, what can I do? And, you know, they were saying like, if you have military experience, if you have construction experience, if you have medical experience, we can use you. I didn't feel like I had any context for what had happened. I certainly was not thinking in terms of historical context or in terms of any like material grievance, particularly after I was able, you know, to talk to my parents and find out that friends, relatives, you know, were okay, neighbors who were not. And seeing the votive candles everywhere, seeing like the makeshift billboards outside bodegas and on lampposts and and street corners that are just like posting. If you've heard from this person, Xeroxes of people's faces, you know, please call this number. I, I had yet to really understand it, but everyone in a position of authority was articulating a response that was just simple rage and turning trauma into something that could be exploited for violence. And I was not questioning that at all. Like, I felt that fear. I felt that trauma. And I also felt something that could have been the seeds of a much better response to 9-11 was something that didn't come from the political leadership, but just came from Americans who got in their cars from wherever around the country and drove to Manhattan to try and do what they could to help at ground zero. Like they were moved out of a spirit of solidarity, people lining up to give blood. There was a lot of solidarity that people wanted to express to make sense of the trauma that they felt. And instead, the leadership of this country harnessed it, harnessed the very real pain of New Yorkers who just watched nearly 3,000 of their neighbors die a horrible death and used it to turn it into something that would deny our other neighbors of their freedom, exclude them from the so-called national unity that so gauzily is remembered 20 years down the line and sort of insisted upon as a way of exploiting all of this pain to turn it into something useful from the perspective of American hegemonic interests globally. And I'm ashamed to say it, but I wrote it in the book to both make it clear that I am no exception here and that, you know, I don't write this out of some kind of self-righteous anger. I write it out of shame and identification that this kind of barbarism resonated with me as well. And it took me, I think, way too long to recognize that feeling and and the way in which the political, journalistic, intellectual explanations on offer had inclined me in subtle ways to interpret the world the way they did. That my operative presumptions were that America, even if like the Iraq war was a disaster, even if the Afghanistan war looked like it was going poorly, but might still perhaps be a valorous enterprise, America still had the right to order the world as it liked. Sometimes I didn't recognize that was there working as an assumption, but it was definitely there. It was there in all of the pieces of journalism that I didn't produce that looked not at the policies, but at the human beings whose lives were destroyed by those policies. Yeah, I just felt like it was important to to set the table there because it it's much easier to kind of reflect with sobriety from our perch today 
on all the misadventures and the, the tragedies of the last 20 years. But that moment, in that moment, it was intense and traumatic and chaotic. And I, I think a lot of us were kind of overcome by some of those unhelpful uh, emotions. And I, I just at least wanted to acknowledge that before we dig into what happened since. And let's go there. Let's go back to those days after 9-11. It, it's obviously very hard to summarize our collective response to that national trauma, which involved a wave of legislation and the construction of various agencies and bureaucracies. But was there a unifying thread to all these things that kind of captured the country's reaction to that event? Yes, it's called American exceptionalism, a way of ordering the world that says America constructs what it calls the rules-based international order, which is to say an international architecture through which first it operates in a leading role. And second of all, the outcomes of it, while you know not always and not guaranteed, are throttled in such a way that it benefits the extent like American political and economic order. It also says that the United States does not have to feel itself bound by the architecture it creates that everyone else is. And most perhaps fundamentally, it says that America acts. America is not acted upon. That was the violation that policymakers felt as they interpreted the trauma of 9-11, that you heard so much extremely loose and ahistorical talk, but nevertheless significant and revealing talk, that America's innocence had been shattered and that America had returned to history. This also helps you understand that American exceptionalism is basically the geopolitical version of white innocence. Like America has never been immune from history. All it likes to do is attempt to escape from history and say that it's not culpable for history, not culpable for things that it does to millions tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people whose lives it holds in the balance, particularly at this moment, 2001, when America is the only global superpower, when there's no prospect of a peer competitor for a, a tremendously you know, long time. The Bush administration, to the rabid applause of pretty much uniformly political media and security elites, intellectuals as well, offered an interpretation of 9-11 that had nothing to do with what al-Qaeda explained were the reasons why it was attacking the United States, and instead offered something that was both metaphysical, civilizational, and euphemistic, which was to say, you know, just think about the name War on Terror. It, you know, might take a moment to notice that it's not, say, the war on al-Qaeda, or it's not a war on Islam, but it is something kind of between those poles where it's not specific enough that it can target an enemy after which, you know, the enemy is destroyed, its capabilities are used up and it's a spent force. And at that point, the emergency ends, the thing stops, nor does it want to say that it is like expressly setting upon a war against one of the world's great religions that has contributed to several of its great civilizations. Instead, something short of that, but not that short, always undefined, always able to have nativist sentiment kind of fill in the gap of this social compromise term called the war on terror. And that is really the response, that a sense of civilizational grievance expressed in metaphysical terms, this foreign adversary drawing on something implied to be intrinsic about the faith of so many people, diagnosing pathologies in entire countries, entire civilizations, entire religions, and saying that violence on a mass scale, is both necessary and desirable to reorient, to fix 
the pathologies once diagnosed in other people. You know, there's a reason why George W. Bush refers to evildoers and bad guys. It's to redefine what evil and bad is from something that you do, acts of evil, to something that you are, which is to say other people, people who are not Americans, against whom so much is licensed in terms of death and in terms of repression and in terms of uh, immiseration. We're fast forwarding a little bit to the present, but I think we should. You know, how did that reaction, how did that that posture, this idea that that we're in this kind of civilizational drama and we're waging this war against a tactic, which by definition is a ceaseless war, how does that lead to Trump? Which obviously is a core thesis of your book, drawing the straight line yes. from 9-11 to today. So map that out for us. So- in that response, in the attribution civilizationally of culpability for 9-11, in the pathologizing of Muslims, of Islam, of the Arab world in particular, to, again, spread culpability and deflect any discussion of how America's extant, hegemonic, violent, and exploitative policies in the Muslim world contribute to a demand for the kind of psychotic political violence that bin Laden is offering. As that takes hold, so too do very old, very historically rooted nativist currents in American history. They're expressed openly by pundits who are openly calling for the American military to invade their lands, convert them to Christianity. As Ann Coulter put it, it leads to an atmosphere where nativism is the subtext of the war on terror. That because the 9-11 hijackers were able to enter the country legally, that immigration is not a mechanism to make more Americans. It's a threat to Americans who are already here. And so Muslim immigrants in particular, but immigrants in general, have to be uh, treated in that context of, of counterterrorism with so much accordingly licensed to do against them to include incarcerating them, deporting them, mistreating them when under detention. And, you know, within, you know, a month, particularly once there is an obliteration of interest in uh, discussing forthrightly what bin Laden said were his reasons for attacking the United States, that is to say, those material policies of the United States, then at that point, you funnel yourself kind of exclusively in a policy response down this accelerated righteous patriotic violence against some people. It is easy to think, as you put it, that calling it the war on terror was about war with a tactic. Really, the name is a social compromise to not say, you know, the war on radical Islamic terror. But it's not a war on terror qua terror, because what we see very quickly is that not everyone's terror is the subject of the war on terror. White people's terrorism, the oldest, most violent, most resilient terrorism in American history, is expressly not part of this and becomes, as one FBI veteran told me much, much later, it becomes the lowest priority for FBI counterterrorism. It also creates, and you see this bubbling up on the right throughout the Bush administration, that like, this is about jihadist terrorism. This is about something concerning Islam. And the right keeps kind of demanding a more explicit response here because the cultivated sense, the sense that the war on terror and its architects consistently send is that Islam is the enemy. Islam must be combated over there and not over here. Evangelical leaders, people with tremendous followings, tremendous platforms, tremendous political influence, as well as spiritual influence, settle on this like very explicitly in 2002 as their explanation and preach from the Southern uh, Baptist Convention and other fora that like this was Islam's mask off moment. 
that now it's not just coming for Israel, it's coming for America, which is also, you know, a deep misunderstanding and a deliberate one of the Israeli-Palestinian so-called conflict. So as the wars deteriorate, it's no accident that the appetite amongst this very cultivated constituency, a constituency actively cultivated in these interpretations by the, by the Republican Party as a tool to retain and cement hold on power and acquiesced to by the Democratic Party, basically nodded to by a military and an intelligence and a law enforcement leadership for a more expressly civilizational definition of the enemy and according focus. And this starts expanding dramatically, particularly when the first black president gets elected. And among the things that this constituency is stoked to believe is that he is an enemy of the United States by virtue, not just of being black, but through the meme of birtherism, you know, the war on terror is right there because it's calling Obama a secret foreign Muslim. And that explains why he is an enemy, why he's not interested in your security and so on. Obviously, we should, you know, just pause to say that, like, this is a lie. It's a giant lie. But nevertheless, this found purchase because it was so aggressively cultivated by people like Donald Trump, who, as every New Yorker, particularly of my age, knows, has played this casually violent nativism for his entire public career and makes sure as well that he's present at these moments of eruption. He's present, for instance, when in 2010, a New York City imam and his wife and his business partners try and set up a community center near Ground Zero, where one had already been an actual Muslim place of worship right there. This is not foreign to New York City. This is These are New Yorkers. They set up something that they see as a Muslim equivalent of the 92nd Street Y, which is like, it's a Jewish space that plays an important role in the intellectual life of New York City generally. And this gets converted with Donald Trump as as a leading carnival barker endangering people's lives into this so-called ground zero mosque, which is viewed and portrayed actively by Islamophobic bigots exploiting the pain of 9-11 as the equivalent of Mehmet II turning Hagia Sophia into a mosque after conquering Constantinople in 1453. And all throughout the Obama presidency, with things like the cultivated assaults in various state legislatures around the country against so-called Sharia law, that was exactly the kind of eruption of nativism that we would later see on the streets of Charlotte, because what it's saying is that they are replacing you. They're replacing your culture, your values, your tradition, and then ultimately your place in the American racial caste that, while it doesn't guarantee you this, is supposed to provide you with a level of material comfort that lets you and not others live in dignity. Over time, the pain of the war on terror, the agony of it being inconclusive and sitting in tremendous conflict with American exceptionalism, because now suddenly the people that have been described to you as subhuman are winning these conflicts. This goes searching for an explanation for why this atrocious circumstance should be happening, and Donald Trump comes along and has an explanation ready to go. Trump understood something about the war on terror, something that Democrats did not. How did his administration manage to turn the war on terror into something even more dehumanizing and grotesque? I'll ask Spencer Ackerman after a short break. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? 
It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. Trump understood something about the war on terror that clearly many liberals and, and Democrats did not. And I'll just quote you here. You write that he recognized that the 9-11 era's grotesque subtext, the perception of non-whites as marauders, even as conquerors from hostile foreign civilizations, was its engine. And by understanding that, he was able to appear hostile to the war on terror by virtue of his contempt that he expressed for it you know, on the campaign trail and whatnot. But what he objected to wasn't the war itself. It was our unwillingness to be even more brutal. And that's clearly key to his exploitation, his peculiar exploitation of the culture wrought by the war on terror. But I do want to ask, beyond just his grotesque rhetoric, how did Trump actually escalate the brutality of the war on terror? Or did he? He did in a variety of specific and concrete ways, to itemize just a few. In 2018, I did a piece for the Daily Beast about this because I discovered that, you know, the first two years of Barack Obama's presidency were the high watermark of U.S. drone strikes around the world. In 2010, they averaged in Pakistan, a very narrow area of Pakistan, basically the size of the New York greater tri-state area, one every three days. Just imagine that. Imagine if there was an airstrike in the greater New York area for an entire year, once every three days. We don't journalistically usually talk about it in those terms, but it's important, I think, that we do because it, it, it reveals the reality, I think, of what this campaign was. That was the high watermark under the Obama administration, which became synonymous with drone strikes around the world. Trump escalated that even before 2018 was finished. Trump had launched more drone strikes than Obama at the height of the drone war. Before suing for peace with the Taliban, which I credit him for doing. He escalated the war in Afghanistan, the war on terror theater that he consistently called the stupidest. He escalates it. He acquiesces to H.R. Uh, McMaster and Jim Mattis, two important figures in the war on terror who are in the Trump administration to try and, at the very least, make sure that he keeps the war on terror going and doesn't stop it in any real way. He repeatedly lies and says that he's pulling U.S. troops out of Syria, when in fact he doesn't. He just simply pulled them back away from their battlefield allies, from the Kurdish forces that the U.S. and Syria relied upon at extreme cost to destroy the ISIS caliphate in Syria and let their Turkish enemies run riot against them. No one in the United States from a policymaker perspective, a congressional perspective, a media perspective, really pays any attention at all to the U.S. and U.S.-backed war in Somalia. Many times we've called Iraq or Afghanistan, varyingly, the forgotten war. But Somalia is a war that's gone on old enough to have a bat mitzvah, and there isn't even a congressional study. Trump escalates that war like no one else has. In the way that, you know, Obama is synonymous with drone strikes, 
in Pakistan and Yemen. Trump ought to be synonymous with drone strikes in Somalia. His presidency wages the war in Somalia like never before. For all of my criticisms of Barack Obama's presidency as it drew the United States into the Syrian civil war, it's not Obama who ultimately takes cruise missile strikes against Bashar Assad's forces. It's Donald Trump. And then we should also not separate out from the operations of the war on terror under Trump's watch. The fact that he banned people from majority Muslim countries from coming into the United States, that he used techniques very familiar from both the war on terror and American history, torture techniques against undocumented people, people at the borders, child separation, extensive stays in detention facilities whose temperatures are manipulated to be deeply cold. At least one toddler dies as the result of this. And of course, the constant encouragement and nudging of white supremacist terrorism here in the United States. And then finally, on the streets of various American cities last summer, Trump uses the mechanisms of the war on terror, putting surveillance over 15 cities via aerial drone against protesters who are calling for black liberation, having the Department of Homeland Security stuff protesters in Portland into unmarked vans for detention and so on. This is Trump waging the war on terror, allowing the war on terror to be its most authentic self. Well, let me ask you this, because I do want to talk about Obama and I do want to talk about the Democrats more generally. And you do a great job in the book of showing how seamlessly the rhetoric on the right careened into Islamophobia, how easily it led to the equation of terrorism with Islam as such. But I'll just say it was never really clear to me, and it's still not entirely clear to me, how to thread that needle. I mean, there was, in fact, a connection between Islam and 9-11, or between certain ideas in the Islamic world and terrorism. Was there a better way to acknowledge that in good faith without slandering an entire religion or feeding into the kind of anti-Muslim hysteria that we've seen? Or was that just bound to emerge in any case? I mean, what's the connection between Christianity and like Christian identity terrorism? Oh, I would say it's you know exactly, what I'm saying. Like, I would say, like, no, I would say it's exactly the same. There, there are all kinds of material and historical factors that make these things operative at one point in history and not in another, which is why I think it's wrong to equate any particular manifestation of a religion with that religion as such. I'm just saying, how could that needle have been threaded in a better way? I think or, it can be addressed honestly by examining what Bin Laden actually said and understanding the history at work in what the United States has been doing in the Muslim world. American elites decided to listen to half of bin Laden's critique and presented as the whole thing. The half of it is the part where he understands violent American actions in the Muslim world through a context of Islamic history that is used as like a justification for sanctified violence. You will find throughout the history of every Abrahamic faith precisely that same exploitation. I mean, the examples are too historically, you know, numerous. If people want to get mad at me for saying that on this podcast, we'll have that fight somewhere on social media or, or back on here again. But like the Cold War is very often given a Christian context, for instance, as a way of justifying global, violent, repressive anti-communism. Does that mean that the religion of a man who really, 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 really hated the rich is somehow anti-communist. I'm Jewish. I'm not a Christian. I don't want to tell anyone what their faith is. But I, I think this is kind of where we see this breaking down. What bin Laden was exploiting was the fact that the United States, over the course of decades, was starving Iraqi children, destabilizing Muslim countries, supporting Israel in its apartheid against the Palestinian people, backstopping the deeply repressive and very often aggressively secular regimes of the Middle East, usually military regimes, backing the apostate 
Saudi royal family, which bin Laden strategically hastens to neglect that like he offered to fight for as recently as 1990, and doing things like destabilizing entire regions for extractive and exploitative hegemonic purposes, where it retains and its allies retain the right to set the terms for the places on the earth where most of the world's Muslims live. And bin Laden casts this in this language of kind of apocalyptic religious interpretation. He, of course, is no religious authority. What he is, is a billionaire who is doing an extreme version of what billionaires always do, which is play with people's lives. And bin Laden, accordingly, sees a lot of life as cheap. And he gets a lot of purchase because throughout the Muslim world, they see America treating Muslim life as cheap. And throughout history, these kind of reactions occur to hegemonic powers who act in such a way. The United States does not want to connect 9-11 to that context. So it interprets bin Laden as simply like, this is barbarism, and we will do whatever it takes to eradicate that barbarism. To understand what the U.S. like comes to call jihadist terror, to really alleviate it, requires the United States to have a very like troubling and penetrating conversation with itself about what the wages of its hegemony are, who benefits from them. That is to say, the extreme few in this country, like the defense industry, that ends up enriching itself off this hegemonic circumstance that most of the American people don't. Yeah, but we can't do that though, right? Yeah, we can't do that at all. I think the American people very much can do that. American elites mm. won't. Yeah. And this is important because very often we have misconstrued, particularly we in the media have misconstrued support for the war on terror as somehow like a broad grassroots phenomenon that compels elites to act in these violent ways. And that is just absolute bullshit. All of this response has been a cultivated enterprise by political, economic, and cultural elites that removes the context of American actions in the Muslim world from 9-11 and accordingly stops a conversation about what durable counterterrorism really would look like, because what it would look like is the end of America's global hegemonic posture and the dismantlement of the architecture that keeps it so, not for ultimately the security of the American people, but for the extractive interests that far more than any democratic, small d democratic constituency demands, but instead is simply accepted as America's reluctant burden of policing a chaotic and dangerous world. Right. I agree with most of that, if not all of it. And certainly the <laughs> the ideology of American exceptionalism is is a bipartisan ideology. Deeply historically rooted. Yes. Beyond simply being bipartisan, we have this just imbued in us as Americans from the start. This is settler colonialism. This is the same thing. Settling the West and policing the rest of the world are the same thing. They emerge from exactly the same historical currents. They just have different contexts and ultimately broader ambitions. Maybe we just answered this, but I, I'll just ask it explicitly anyway. Why couldn't Democrats, why couldn't Obama escape the gravity of the war on terror? Why did they get sucked into the same self-fulfilling vortex as the Republicans? They buy into American exceptionalism. This is also a downstream consequence of the Democratic Party's divorce from its former base in the labor movement. As the Democratic yeah. Party becomes less of a working class party, becomes less receptive to Democratic interests and far more receptive to upper middle class and wealthy interests, its view of foreign policy is that it's sort of something that can only hurt them, particularly after like the searing experience of the Cold War 
And that's where a lot of, particularly in the first several years after 9-11, liberal journalists and intellectuals go. The policymakers themselves are in far more of a reactive position, facing just a deep, deep fear that they'll never enjoy power again if they oppose any aspect of the war on terror. And this is ultimately the glide path for the Democratic Party's elites to march into Iraq. But from the intellectual perspective, amongst liberal elites, the ideas that carried the day were that the war on terror could be a valorous struggle that saves people from the nightmares of these despotic rules by, you know, the Taliban as necessary or Saddam Hussein or something like that through the righteous application of American violence on their behalf, which is what imperialism always justifies itself as accomplishing, delivering security and justice when in fact it delivers only extraction, death and injustice. And sort of through that also functions as kind of a grand national undertaking. It's hard to kind of get across because it's so sick 20 years later how like so many journalists, I worked for the New Republic at the time. This is just what was happening in that newsroom. The ways in which the war on terror was seen as kind of like this Kennedy-esque mechanism for grand national purpose that showed like American power was back and with American power, American virtue would be on display. And through that so-called unity, again, a unity that was predatory by white people against Muslims and other immigrants, not a true national unity at all. The painful scars of American divisions, you know, during the 1990s, all of the unpleasantness between Clinton and the Republicans, that could be put back together. The country could be reunited through this long but critical struggle to reassert American power. And that was a reaction undertaken by the leadership of the Democratic Party and its apologists that had just enormous damage, put so many people in the United States' freedom on the line, as well as their lives. And it took the Democratic Party into a position where it found it difficult once the carnage of Iraq was so on display and they were so complicit in it to sort of walk out of that. And they never really do. They seek, when Barack Obama becomes president, to make the war on terror more technocratic, less conspicuous, more quote-unquote humane, and tell themselves that they've kind of tamed this creature and are now approaching a kind of golden mean of responsible leadership that protects the American people without overcommitting it to a campaign of forever war, which in fact is what they do. What you're saying now really highlights this tragic contradiction that Democrats just marched right into. They couldn't let go of the war on terror for all these political reasons, or they could have, but they didn't. They chose not to. So they tried to manage. This is always they a choice. They chose not to. This is always a choice. It's always a choice. So they tried to manage and bureaucratize it, but the longer it persisted, the more it failed. And the more it fostered the nativist undercurrents that propped it up in the first place. And here we are. And here we are. And what also, I think, doesn't always get as appreciated, but is critical context for understanding someone like Trump and how he was so able, without incurring any consequence within a Republican Party that had been so devoted to the war on terror for like saying like these wars have been stupid is because throughout the Obama administration, the management of wars that are clearly viewed as failures. No one wants to say at that point yet that they are lost wars, but like it's obvious that they haven't delivered what they promised and they've only delivered agony and suffering and increased terrorism, increased in particular the virulence and ambition and scope and opportunities of what becomes the Islamic State, which would never have existed had the US not invaded Iraq. But through the Obama administration's maintenance of the war on terror, now the democratic elite has taken ownership 
of wars that are simply agonizing and seen as agonizing. And that's self-discrediting, that when Trump launches his critiques of the wars, it's Hillary Clinton, one of the most complicit in the war on terror, someone who calls American Muslims the front lines of the war on terror to the horror of so many American Muslim communities and leaders. And her reaction is very often umbrage on behalf of the war on terror, that the problem with what Trump is saying, she very often suggests, is his rejection of the wars, which she doesn't really bother to argue are valorous. She just interprets the whole thing as simply part of what wielding American power and creating and maintaining responsible global stewardship looks like. And it becomes not particularly conspicuous to the political class, but nevertheless very conspicuous to Trump's coalition that these disastrous wars now look a whole lot, as they truly always were, but a whole lot like wars waged by the Democratic Party. I mean, in case people don't know, I think Obama, he referred to the Iraq war as the dumb war, but he was very much supportive of the Afghanistan war. And the way you put it in the book is to say that he tried to put the forever war on a sustained footing, or as you just said a second ago, he wanted to wage it humanely. What does that actually mean in practice? Well, in practice, what it meant was compiling internal committees of lawyers, intelligence officials, senior military officers, and ultimately high-ranking political appointees who would come together in a bureaucratic process that metered out life and death in the war on terror through most often drone strikes and also counterterrorism raids. None of these wars were declared wars, but you know, non-declared battlefields. I don't really I don't think we've really come up with a good enough terminology that classifies that, but basically places that are not Iraq and Afghanistan. You can read an excellent series of accounts of this in Charlie uh, Savage's book, Power Wars, as well as other places. This was seen as a way of making the war on terror respect the law. But the thing is, is that the law wasn't respected. What happened was instead, lawyers in the Obama administration and in the intelligence community and in the military found justifications for what Obama already wanted to do. To the point where two attorneys, David Barron and Marty Lederman, in the Justice Department, Barron was rewarded for this with a federal judgeship, told Barack Obama that despite the Constitution's prohibitions on depriving someone of life without due process of law, that it could simply execute an American citizen named Anwar Awlaki, who was an important and even operational figure in al-Qaeda in Yemen, and an American citizen someone whom the war on terror radicalized into becoming himself a radicalizer of other people, including the Detroit underwear bomber, Omar Farouk Abdul-Muttalib. Probably not for the last time that we will see, as long as the war on terror persists, the Obama administration's process that was supposedly more lawful said that you could just execute an American citizen if, in this case, the CIA, a law enforcement or intelligence authority said that it would just be too complicated to apprehend them. That's probably not going to be the last time this happens. But it was this supposedly lawful process that allowed for that situation of constitutional emergency that I think we've lived in ever since and don't fully appreciate. We might perhaps better appreciate it when remembering that in the summer of 2020, the Trump administration maneuvered a lot of the mechanisms of the war on terror against its domestic opponents. There's going to be another right-wing administration. It will probably look more like Trump's than not. It may be more competent and it may be bolder. And it will have a precedent blessed by Obama's Justice Department that says, if it's too hard to apprehend people you claim are dangerous terrorists, just kill them launch these drone strikes on them. That, stripped of euphemism, stripped of self-conception, was Obama's war on terror. It also involved a lot of other attributes, from you know, the mass deportations 
to Obama expressly retaining uh, the option of indefinite detention without charge, even as he sought to close the specific manifestation of that in Guantanamo Bay. But that's really the Obama legacy of the war on terror. And I asked Ben Rhodes, who was one of his, probably his most left-wing policy aide, why they didn't dismantle the war on terror, particularly after they had the opportunity once they killed bin Laden. And his answer was like, imagine if he does what you wanted him to do, and there's another terrorist attack and the world ends. And what he really means is not the world ending, but that's the end of Obama's presidency. But that is not something that had to happen. First of all, if Obama made a thoroughgoing case for why the war on terror is a generator of its own security threats to Americans, as he kind of edges toward on a couple occasions in his presidency to include the 2013 speech he gives at the National Defense University. And also the maintenance of the war on terror had demonstrably made Americans less safe not alleviated their security concerns. And so while, of course, Obama would have been demagogued for having done that, the only way you can stand up to the demagoguery is by actually standing up to it and making an affirmative case for why the war on terror is a failure of profound consequence. Obama couldn't escape the self-fulfilling logic of the war on terror. But now we're in the Biden era, and the war in Afghanistan is over. So now what? That's next after one more short break. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God, but I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. There is a bridge here between Obama and Biden. And obviously, we're talking a week after the official end of the Afghanistan war. And I... Some people may see that as a kind of end to the war on terror, but I don't think that's the case. And I don't think you do either. And we'll get to that in just a second. But I will ask you first, what do you make of Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan? And what do you make of the reaction to it? So from a top line perspective, withdrawing from Afghanistan is absolutely the right thing to do. Every year that we were in Afghanistan, Afghanistan grew more chaotic the Taliban grew stronger. I don't really think that's deniable anymore. Um, So there's never a better time to withdraw from Afghanistan than yesterday. And the second best time is always going to be today. The worst time is always going to be tomorrow. And I don't believe that the media or the political class has contextualized it in quite that way. And that drives, in many ways, the reaction that we've seen. 
So Biden, of course, is right to withdraw. He also has the opportunity of the deal that the Trump administration struck with the Taliban for a withdrawal that if you thought this was chaotic, imagine if there was no deal with the Taliban and there was a withdrawal. You served in the military. You know the extreme danger of a retrograde action under actual or potential fire. This is not something to be dismissed. Then when Biden gets into office, he takes a long time, several months, to launch a study of whether his administration is going to follow through on the withdrawal and, and the deal. The withdrawal in particular was negotiated with the Taliban and the Trump administration set for a deadline of May 1st. Biden just decides he's not going to abide by that deadline because he wants more time to do this. What was going on was Secretary of State Tony Blinken and the U.S. longtime envoy to Afghanistan, Zalmay Khalilzad, trying to see if, despite the U.S. being a combatant in the Afghanistan war, that it could help compel uh, a peace process between the Ashraf Ghani government that it created and backstopped and the Taliban that would forestall the outright Taliban victory that ultimately happened. Now, because the Taliban had won the war and was in a position for victory, all of this was very much a kind of like, sure, Jan, reaction from them. But it wasted valuable time that could have been spent evacuating people, people who were in real dire conditions of vulnerability, despite all of the kind of recent talk about like no one could have foreseen how rapidly the Afghan government was going to collapse. Like these stories, if you were reading Afghanistan coverage or, you know, performing Afghanistan coverage since 2020 in the deal and before was like constantly there, like the anxieties of a return to Taliban rule were not obscure things. They are foreseen and foreseeable things. They were foreseen things. And the Biden administration, particularly once it became clear that like there wasn't going to be a peace process, that the Taliban was just winning. And Biden, having set his own unilateral deadline for August 31st or just before the 20th anniversary of 9-11, the Taliban start winning, like formally, including in the areas of northern Afghanistan that they had never held when they were first in power. And the situation becomes quite dire. If you've been to Afghanistan You've seen how the war hasn't really been in Kabul. It's been fought in the provinces. That's why Kabul is so dense, because the refugees from the violence in Afghanistan come to Kabul in the hope of some kind of safety. The Biden administration throttled the departure of first Americans, then foreign allies, and then Afghans that aided the U.S. war effort in Western interests. I've described it as a moral floor that operated as a moral ceiling. The United States created millions of refugees in Afghanistan. And if you didn't serve the war effort, if you merely sought to endure and survive it, you weren't going to be on those planes. You were not going to be the people whose lives America was interested in saving. For all of the reaction that has occurred with journalists in particular rending their garments about the very real human disaster that America is responsible for, what I see typically is people you know, expressing their anger that 20 years of war seemingly ended suddenly and yielded nothing when in fact these were the consequences of 20 years of war and a call seemingly for more violence rather than accepting the responsibility that the United States has to materially redress the refugees that it has created, much as it did earlier when creating those refugees in Central America. I'll just say, I, I, I'd like to believe that ending the Afghanistan war would mean ending the war on terror. But as you just alluded to, the response to Biden's withdrawal especially from the establishment press, for lack of a better word, shows that the ethos of American exceptionalism or this quiet, blind, uncritical commitment to the inherent goodness of American power persists. 
And that's not encouraging. And there are already signs, and I think you've, you pointed to this somewhere else, that Biden is still, even though he ended the Afghanistan war, mired in that same logic of Obama and his other predecessors. In other words, he wants to keep fighting the war on terror. But as he said in his speech the other day, we just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. Yeah. The implication being that, well, we can just keep drone striking our way through it and we can keep relying on, on special forces as though that's somehow an alternative to the war on terror instead of what it is, which is a, a continuation. That's right. That's exactly right. And, you know, now get familiar with the new euphemism over the horizon counterterrorism capability instead of the words, yeah. you know, drone strikes. Biden, as you point out, in his speeches about Afghanistan, fits into a pattern that we saw during the Obama administration, which is that rescission on one war on terror battlefield is acceptable in the name of continuing the broader enterprise that for Obama, it was Iraq, for Biden, now it's Afghanistan, that it's considered a liability to the enterprise. And that's why you stop the war instead of any number of the other reasons that are more fundamental to stopping the war that have nothing to do with the interests of the war on terror that are opposed to the interests of the war on terror. And, you know, even beyond that, ending the war on terror requires repealing, at a minimum, all of the authorities and breaking the tools that were created after 9-11. And Biden has expressed no interest in that. So I've also been pressing the Biden administration from jump to no success to just have a conversation with me about what they mean by ending endless wars, what they mean by why forever wars are, are no good. Instead, it seems from practice that we can only infer that Biden just means Afghanistan. And after that, the broader enterprise can continue and like aspirationally, maybe we'll, you know, resettle the detainees from Guantanamo if we can find repatriating places for them to live and so on and so forth. I guess I'll end by saying, I think this is a phenomenal book, Spencer. And I think it captures the almost Kafka-esque quality of the war on terror. So many of the people responsible for sustaining this nightmare, like Obama and Biden and Bush and Trump and so on and so on, knew it was a nightmare all along, felt imprisoned by its logic and the demands of political expediency. And the whole damn thing just kept spinning along by its own sordid momentum. And you closed the book by saying that it's difficult to see America as anything more than its war on terror. And I don't know if I'd put it that way, but I would say that Americans have so internalized the war on terror, its ethics, its excesses, its failures, that we can't even see beyond it. It's just in the ether now. And the whole thing feels like a metaphor for the slow motion death of the American empire. And that was a lot of words. So I, I guess you can respond to that however you want. But I just I felt it was important to say that. Well, the first thing I would want to say is thank you. I'm happy that the book resonated with you. And I'm very grateful for this conversation. I've, I've had a fantastic time and appreciate, you know, getting to talk about this at length and in depth. I think what an appropriate point to end on is to underscore what the war on terror is and why it has to be abolished, why it can't be reformed. And what it ultimately means is not just as the democratic emergency that it represents, how it's eroding precisely the thing that put out there that it was supposedly ensuring, which is freedom. But, you know, we're recording this on a day when Brown University's Costs of War Project has put out its latest estimate of the consequences of the war on terror. And the consequences are, this is a very analytically conservative tally. It finds well over 900,000 people killed by the war on terror and $8 trillion when we include obligated commitments to war on terror veterans in money that I think is best described as looted. The Afghanistan war didn't rebuild Afghanistan. The Afghanistan war rebuilt Northern Virginia. The Afghanistan war and the war like the war on terror beyond it enriched a very small and exceedingly powerful private interest, a private interest that is symbiotic with 
the public trough, which is the defense industry. The defense industry functions as what I think you could say is the American variant of state capitalism. It is a market like arms exports, determined by public spending and is privately profitable. This is an enterprise that operates as a tremendous force, not just for inertia in the American empire, but its growth. Like the cost of war project calculated, obviously we paid for the war on credit. This was paid by borrowing, not through taxes or anything like that. But if you were to break down the cost of $8 trillion to every American taxpayer, your bill for the war on terror is something like $8,094. What would you rather have spent that on? Yeah, that's a big question, you know, and as hard as it is, impossible as it is to sum up the opportunity cost of the war on terror, you know, and even if you set aside all the blood and treasure spilled, that question, what could we have done that we didn't do because of this catastrophe? I don't know the answer to it. I don't know that anyone knows the answer to it, but it's a depressing question. And on that note, (laughs) Spencer Ackerman, thanks so much for being here today, man. Thank you very much, Sean. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement. We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.